Welcome to Rising to the Top, Lessons in Leadership, brought to you by Columbia University. This is a podcast where we interview senior industry leaders who share the secrets of their success and reveal pivotal moments that impacted their career path. Come listen as they shed light on obstacles they overcame, as well as wins they achieved. My name is Paul Maniachi from the Career Design Lab, and I will be your host for today's discussion with Jennifer Riano Goez of Morgan Stanley. For me, in every situation, whether when I was in high school to today at Morgan Stanley, it has been going into any role with a desire to continue to learn more. Jennifer Riano Goez, EDD, is an executive director at Morgan Stanley, leading firm-wide diversity leadership programs in North America. Before joining Morgan Stanley, Jennifer was the Senior Director of Faculty Recruitment and Communication Strategy at Columbia University School of Professional Studies, overseeing full-time and part-time faculty recruitment, and was the founding co-chair of the Columbia SPS Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility Committee. At Columbia Business School, Jennifer was the Director of Learning Solutions. She managed the flagship program for developing current and future CEOs for global organizations and the Women in Leadership program. In this role, Jennifer led business development, marketing, communications, and curriculum development in collaboration with faculty and industry leaders. Jennifer earned her doctoral degree in August 2021 from Teachers College, Columbia University. Her research focused on exploring how an academic institution implements a diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative in a non-tenure track environment. Jennifer is currently developing a DEIB learning framework founded on adult learning and leadership theories to improve organizational learning and professional development strategies to foster inclusive and diverse work environments and a model to evaluate the impact of DEIB initiatives. Thank you so much for being with us today, Jennifer. Thanks, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Jennifer, when we when we spoke prior to today in, in our pre-flight call, you mentioned being a, a first-generation college student from Columbia, the, the country, and learning English at, at five years old. You also mentioned that it took you eight years to complete your undergraduate degree. How did these experiences impact you? My parents came here in the early 1970s from Columbia, and I, I didn't realize that I was you know, going to be different than any other uh, kid at school when I was sort of plopped into a, a kindergarten class, not being able to communicate with the other kids. Um, I lived in a bubble, a, you know, Colombian, you know, Latino uh, community in a bubble, essentially, where I just didn't know any different. So that was great in many ways, too, uh, because I was able to hold on and, and really get a sense of our culture and heritage in that way. Also, by being bilingual uh, has helped me a great deal in my life. But yeah, at the time, you know, being a four or five years old in a classroom with other kids who spoke a language you didn't, it was certainly challenging. So it, I quickly had to adapt, assimilate, and find a way to hold my own in that space. So I think for a kid, that's um, it, it certainly helps to make you tougher, kind of facing that adversity early on. In terms of college, you know, I had to work from a very early age to help my family out. I think simply because we were a first generation, uh, there were a lot of economic 
there was a lot of, of economic hardship. So I couldn't really do a lot of the activities after school that my other classmates were doing to prepare for college. In fact, you know, I don't think that was ever a discussion with my parents. They wanted me to succeed. They just didn't really have the information and the tools to help me to get there in a way that prevented a lot of undue hardship uh, to to get there. I just didn't know the the ways or the things that I needed to do to prepare for college. So ultimately, I knew I had to go to college. I wanted to go to college, but I had to work my way through um, through school. Uh, my parents were support, but ultimately I had to figure it out on my own. So I, I went to a few community colleges. We ended up moving to California when I was 15, so that was a whole other um, experience that made a situation that was already challenging even more challenging. But in hindsight, it was such a great experience because I, I really got to know a whole new um, group of students and, and a different kind of culture. I was in California. Um, I went to a few community colleges. I had to get a job there. And, you know, it didn't get any easier. I mean, there was a time where things were so tough that I had to live in a shelter. But I think all of these challenges really helped me to, you know, become more resilient um, and be it just be more focused on the fact that I needed to figure out what I needed to do to improve my life um, and and get my college education at the same time have a professional life which was something that was always something that I wanted to do. You end up in higher education and then you end up being an advocate for students that potentially could have been like you, right? Students of diverse communities or diverse populations. Yes, I mean, I did have a few career changes. And I think it was it was a question of, at the time when I was in California trying to figure out how to make my way, I, I ended up with a job as uh, an assistant, a secretary really, um, to an attorney, a criminal attorney. And I don't remember how I found this job, but it was interesting. He had a case that was in the media, and I didn't know. Actually, 2020 had covered it. And he would run through his arguments for his court appearances with me. I would sit down and I would listen to his court arguments, and it was really fascinating. So I thought I wanted to become an attorney. You know, he would take me to Superior Court in San Francisco and really was trying to mentor me to follow a law degree. So, you know, I, I owe him a lot. He was a, a great mentor. But ultimately, it wasn't the path that I went down. You know, I, I actually continued to work in the legal field when I moved back to New York, and it served me well as I was starting a family. Um, I had finished my, my bachelor's degree at the time. But ultimately, um, I transitioned to a higher education career when I completed my MBA. What takes you from the legal field to, to higher education? Again, a great mentor. Uh, I was, you know, taking the courses during my MBA, and I happened to be at a college at a time where it just happened to be very special, I think. When I, when I look back on it, there were faculty members who were people that were academics, but, at, but, but also had you know street cred. They had worked on Wall Street. They had worked in some of the best firms, financial services you know, firms in the world. And they were our professors. So I became part of some of the activities to help promote the MBA program, the undergraduate program, as a graduate assistant, as a student at the time. And I really grew to love the work that we were doing 
um, you know, supporting the overall, you know, mission of, of the business school. And on the last day, the graduate dean who was teaching the capstone class asked us all, passed around an index card and asked us all, where do you go from here? What do you want to do? Which was a great question. And I was so inspired by my graduate dean uh, that I wrote on the card, you know, I'd love to work for you. I'd love to work at the college. And a week later, you know, right before graduation, he reached out to me and he said, how would you like to work for us in helping to support a new business honors program? And I said, I would love to. So um, I was hired and I started working on doing outreach for undergraduate students, recruitment, programming for those students. And I loved being able to connect with with them, with their parents, uh, and really helping them to create a pathway for them at that college. One of the other things that I did, when I, when I think about, you spoke about diversity, you know, equity and inclusion and belonging and how I got involved, it really started there. I mean, when I was working as a legal assistant, I was also volunteering time for a nonprofit that was supporting DACA students going through that process, that legal process. And oftentimes it can be scary because you don't really know how to take control and get information about what's going on with, with, with respect to your case. Um, it's, it's a scary thing, right? There's a lot of um, feeling powerless in, in those situations. So what I would do is I would go out and just show them how to get information, how to navigate court sites and just stay updated on their cases. So I, 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 was, I felt I was always leaning towards kind of going back into you know, the communities of students or, or people who just didn't have access. And, and since I didn't have that access, I guess internally at that point, I hadn't really thought about it to, to the extent that I said, I'm doing this because it just felt like the right thing to do. And it was something that I, that I wanted to do. And then once I got into higher education at this college, I decided to go back into my community. There was this, um, a place called the Hispanic Brotherhood. And I knew that that's where students would be dropped off by their parents if they couldn't afford after-school care. I would go after work and speak to those students and say, I was once you, and I want to tell you these you know, four things that you can do now that can help you avoid the mistakes that I made or you know, have information that I didn't have at the time. So I, I really wanted to help younger people avoid barriers or know how to navigate the barriers and and move forward and at the same time there there was also the factor of the parents right I knew that my parents wanted me to succeed but they were too busy working and they didn't have the information so the other piece that I did while I was in higher ed is I went to my local community to the superintendent of schools and I said I know that we're doing a lot to support you know, younger students in getting to college and preparing for college, but part of the piece that you're not addressing is that the parents don't know exactly what that process looks like. So, you know, we developed a curriculum for eighth graders to 12th grade that, you know, provided a workshop for parents in the fall and the spring for each grade to say, your child is going to have to do this this year. They're going to have to start thinking about standardized exams, you know, to that when they have to fill out FAFSAs, you know, they will ask you for your income tax return. Don't be afraid. They will need it to complete and they will need it to complete this form. And so just being able to provide them, provide them that information and tell them, 
your child might not be able to stay after school today, rather to go to work today um, after school because there is a meeting for SAT prep, you know. So providing parents with that information was the missing link, I think, in ensuring that there was a, an easier pathway for first generation or, you know, underrepresented community s students in our community to, to know what to do to get ready and prepare for college. And if you had to, to choose one pivotal moment, would it, you think it traces back to when you were volunteering while you were still uh, in the legal field? Like that's kind of where, where things began and then, then your advocacy grew? You know, I think it really began with the outreach to students and the outreach to parents. And I haven't been able to do that as much as I would like to now, but I think being able to connect with a student and just helping one student and then they're able to share that out with their other friends. The higher ed piece was really the pivotal moment for me. When I joined Columbia Business School, that was a whole other level of, you know, D&I work, different environment entirely. You mentioned that you've worked in the legal field, you've worked in higher ed, and, and now you're in the financial sector. Can you talk a little bit about having transferable skills and how you've been able to take your experience from, from one industry to the next. There may have been some challenges along the way, but obviously you've been able to, to find work in different industries. For me, in every situation, whether when I was in high school to today at Morgan Stanley, it has been going into any role with a desire to continue to learn more. First of all, do your job, doing my job to the best of my ability. Um, then being able to ask or being interested enough to ask questions and see at a broader level what needs to be addressed in terms of gaps, in terms of ways that we can work better or address challenges better. And, and that takes listening, that takes communicating, asking questions, and that willingness to step up, even if you don't have all the information to help you do that job perfectly or or address that issue, you know, head on, just asking the question, finding out the information, figuring out what resources you have to address those gaps, and then looking for a way to address them. If you don't have the resources, ask for them, ask for the support, because they're the, you know, the outcome can certainly benefit the firm or the organization or your team. So uh, I just wanted to kind of pivot for a moment. We're all living in this, living through this pandemic. And uh, as if things weren't hard enough prior to the pandemic, as far as people being busy, there's these, there are these new challenges. So I was wondering if, if you could talk a little bit about how uh, being a parent, being someone with a, a demanding job, how are you able to prioritize your self-care? There's no one thing, right? I think it's trying to find moments, whether it's on your commute, you know, listening to a podcast, listening to music, doing something that can really give you that opportunity to connect with yourself, right? We're constantly being distracted. As you said, you know, there's so much going on, um, you know, social media, our phones, all of that. Um, and you have to just find a moment to disconnect from, from all of it. So for me, it's, you know, it's music, it's reading, it's, um, 
it's at times social media I will watch funny reels that just you know poke fun at our humanity light moments and also connecting with my daughters you said you know you mentioned being a parent you know physical exercise I, I ran marathons I, I ran Boston I was also a age group national triathlete uh, you know those things really helped me to stay focused whether it was you know my education or my work or family so physical exercise so whatever it might be for you you know whether it's running painting uh, being able to you know disconnect from the day-to-day -day and have some fun find some time to have some fun and some light conversation Jennifer, I wanted to, to learn a bit more about your work at Morgan Stanley. And more broadly, if you could speak about the importance of having diversity embedded in an organization's culture and what it brings to a company. You know, we, we talk a lot about D, you know, DEIB, right? Diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging now. And you know, the business case for diversity and inclusion has been talked about for some time. Right, uh, the fact that an organization appreciates the differences of others and recognizes it as a strength for its organization is unquestionable now. But if you just look at some of the, you know, research, uh, some of the case studies, that, you know, in 1987, uh, there were two gentlemen, Johnson and Packer, who wrote this uh, paper. It was called Workforce 2000. So this was in 1987, and they were pointing out at the time how critical diversity and women and you know underrepresented groups would be to the workforce in the future so you know we're, we're talking 1987 right before you know, people were talking about DEIA DEIB um, as much as we are now and then you think about other important research pieces I am you know Credit Suisse had also a study where they looked at over 2300 companies and I think this was in 2014 where they looked at the fact that organizations that had more diverse boards were more successful at every level, whether you looked from net equity to debt ratios, whether you looked at whether or not they were successful across a number of different measures. They were. And then there's uh, Professor Kathy Phillips from Columbia Business School. She also wrote a paper in 2015 that spoke to why diversity makes us smarter, and it was published in Scientific American. Then you have BCG and you have McKinsey. There's all manner of research out there that points to the fact that organizations are better when they have diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging as part of their organizations, right? Part of their core values and purpose. And that is true for, for Morgan Stanley. What I would say that is so important is that, you know, I keep reading articles that speak to the fact that, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives don't work, right? Training doesn't work. And I find that to be really challenging. First and foremost, because you're right, forcing training down somebody's, you know, trying to like force it into their brain doesn't really work. It has to be part of the ethos of the culture of the organization. It has to be something that is embedded in every area of the organization. So when you're thinking about recruitment, right, what's talent acquisition looking to do to ensure that their hiring practices are equitable? For example, in every area of an organization, there is a person making a decision and that person comes with biases. It's a factor, it's part of our humanity. When an organization is seeking to make it more equitable, right, and make decisions that make the, 
you know, the organization more diverse and inclusive. One of the first areas that they can just look at and start to examine is how are we addressing bias? You know, where, where can we minimize bias in all of the decision-making processes of an organization so that we're not barring that or keeping that from holding other people to have access to opportunity? And so that's something that, you know, I think is critical to any organization to do. I mean, we just have to, for example, Danny Kahneman's book, you know, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, you know, you know, we are wired as humans to, to have biases because those biases help us make faster decisions. And thousands and thousands of years ago, that also meant, you know, our survival. So we're wired to have these biases. So when you think about an organization uh, and you think about yourself, having the opportunity to work on addressing your biases and where they may surface, whether it's in your role or in a broader project, you know, just right there, you can have tremendous impact. So an organization that is really focused on ensuring equitable, inclusive practices, you know, just if, we, if you just start with you know, addressing bias, mitigating bias, um, you can go a long way. And then that also signals to managers and to others that the organization is working towards ensuring that others have access to opportunity. More so than ever, right? We're making sure that opportunity isn't being denied to others simply because our biases prevent us from ensuring that others are getting access to those opportunities. And did you really start working hands-on in, in DEIA uh was that when you helped uh, form the DNI initiative at Columbia SPS? Yeah. Um, so I know you worked at the business school, but you also worked at, at the School of Professional Studies. Yes, I did. Is that when you would say that you really became passionate about, about this work? Yeah, I think it goes back to when I was at the business school. Again, I think the, the, the advocacy for underrepresented groups started, you know, back when I was in the legal field. I just didn't realize that it would become my life's work. But there were steps along the way that weaved sort of the fabric of what my li- the fabric of, of my life today. And when I was at Columbia Business School, I was responsible for outreach to Fortune 100 organizations, right, for um, participation in our programs. And I would see time and time again that there was a particular type of, indi- of individual being selected for that development. So what I would do is I would connect with the learning and development decision makers and say, what can I do to help incentivize you send sending more women to programs, right? So it was engaging in those conversations with the decision makers at firms to say, how can you make, you know, level the playing field for others in your organization to have access to this development? That was first. And then, and then also I had the privilege to get to know and work with Professor Kathy Phillips from the business school who has since passed away and has had a tremendous impact on diversity, equity, and inclusion. I mentioned her before. And we were working to develop an inclusive leadership three-day program for executives. So this was, you know, back in 2017, 2018. And then I had the opportunity to join SPS. And my role there was the Senior Director of Faculty Recruitment and Communications Strategy. And I had an amazing associate dean of faculty affairs who knew I, I cared about this work. Uh, we were both going through the doctoral program together at Teachers College, and she said, "You know, we need to develop uh, workshops or work with other partners to support our faculty developing inclusive classroom spaces." And I said, "Great, I am 
all over it. So I went out to the office of the provost with her, with her to have this conversation, and that's exactly what we started to do. This was moving along fairly well, you know, now early 2020 and COVID hits in March. I knew that this was going to potentially put our work, uh, you know, on a pause. And I took advantage of that time to get a certificate from Cornell uh, ILR on diversity and inclusion. No, I didn't even ask for financial support to take this course. And by the way, DE&I was not part of my job description. This was something that I was doing in addition to, you know, my official role. So I decided to invest in it myself. You know, and again, kind of going back to what you when you were asking me, what would I recommend as far as transferable skills? You know, sometimes it's you know, taking that chance to seek further development. And even if you're not getting the financial support from your business or, you know, from whomever it is that you would, would ultimately benefit from, from you gaining this knowledge is, can you take this with you? And do you feel a personal responsibility, personal and professional responsibility to your, you know, your, your colleagues, you know, your, your workplace uh, partners, to do an excellent job, and that's exactly what I, what I, what I decided. I decided that I didn't want to do anything that would derail this initiative, and so I, I got the certificate. And when I concluded the certificate in June, then everything changed. Right now, DE and I was a priority, and we needed to do something right away to support our entire community at SPS. So a working group was formed. We looked to create um, spaces for all of our community members, continue to, de to develop our, our faculty, to develop inclusive classrooms, to also address bias in classroom spaces and decision-making, um, how to be better allies, you know, a number of different topics. And we created a, a DEI subcommittee for faculty and then it wasn't until a year later actually that the overall DEI committee was created a CDO was appointed and we were able to move along more formally but we got a lot done as did a lot of the programs I would say a lot of the programs had leadership who were committed to DEI and they had programs for their students, for their alumni, for their faculty to support their development, to have spaces to be able to talk about what was happening in the world and how and how it was impacting them and their and their experiences. So I give a lot of credit to all of the community members that came together to ensure that we had a a, a viable and sustainable DNI initiative, which which is still going strong. In the beginning of the conversation, you were talking about transferable skills and filling gaps. So it seems like you noticed that there was a gap. And so you you pursued that. You're like, this is an area where I can build. And so you you got the certificate from, from Cornell. And it sounds like in some of the learnings that you acquired there, it helped move things along. So thank you for sharing that. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the work that you're that you're currently doing at at Morgan Stanley as it re as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yes, so I completed my doctoral degree at Teachers College in 2021, and I had to make a decision, and that, that decision was, did I want to stay in higher ed and continue to develop my expertise in, in, in higher education, 
or try something new, right? Have a new experience in a new area of, um, of D&I work. And I was lucky in that I was offered a position at Harvard um, to be an assistant dean, to lead a DNI and initiative for the School of Engineering or Morgan Stanley. And I went with Morgan Stanley. Uh, sometimes, you know, I, I, I wonder what, what, um, what that journey would have been like at Harvard, but I'm really happy in the work I'm doing now. I mean, Morgan Stanley is an organization that has DNI embedded in every area of its culture, of our work and practice. And so what I'm doing is I'm heading up our diversity leadership programs, our firm-wide diversity leadership programs for North America. And these are programs that are developed for our multicultural community to ensure their development uh, in the firm. We also partner with other organizations like McKinsey. McKinsey has great programs as well. McKinsey's Connected Leaders Academy and other organizations that support women, that support you know Hispanic, Latinos, Asians, and African-Americans as well. So the, the work is related to supporting the current staff. Does it, is it also related to, to how some of the recruiting happens? You know, there are colleagues. We have a tremendous team, not just in North America, but also in EMEA and in Asia and APAC, focused on DNI initiatives at every level of DNI. So, you know, talent acquisition, talent management, talent development. There is a tremendous amount of work that's being done. We have DNI advisors, we have experts, we have our community outreach through the Equity Consortium, um, doing outreach to students, uh, doing outreach in communities, the development that we do um, to support our multicultural community. There's a lot that we're doing and I'm really proud to be, to be part of this work. So um, I wanted to, to get a little advice for you from you for our students. As someone who knows the, the School of Professional Studies, I was wondering if you had any advice for students on how they can make the most of their time while they're at Columbia. I would say the first thing is that because we have faculty who are people that are leaders in their industries is to get to know your faculty. You know, don't be afraid to reach out to them and ask them questions, get to know them. I wholeheartedly believe that a person becomes a faculty member, especially when they're doing a, another full-time job at a top organization, is that they are truly committed to being an educator and giving back. So they want to be able to connect with you. So I would say connect with every single fac faculty member that you can. Ask them for advice. Ask them questions because they want to be of service to you. I would also say connect with your staff, the, you know, the staff and the administrators and students and alumni. They're, SPS has a tremendous community and has tremendous resources. You know, when I just think about what the Career Design Lab has been able to do for students since it was created, it's, it's tremendous. So my recommendation is don't underestimate the importance of connection, building your network, and seeking out a mentor or mentors at, uh, at SPS because there's a lot of people that want to help you um, and, and support you in your career path, in your career journey. When we talked previously, you had talked about the importance of confidence and our, and our students having confidence and how they, they shouldn't be afraid to, to have faith in themselves and, and listen to their gut. Can you talk a little bit more about where that comes from? And is that something that, that you do? <laughs> yes. 
I would say that's certainly something that I do. You know, when I think about some of these jobs that I had early on um, and the economic and sort of familiar familial challenges that I had in my life, you know, it was some of it was, you know, uh, the need to survive and to get by. So that in and of itself gave me that confidence and that fire to continue to seek out opportunities and to just believe that there was going to be something better down the road for me. But it was having a belief that I had the capacity to do more. And I think this goes back to the transferable skills. You know, when you go to apply for a position, right? your job is not just going to be what that job description has. You know, you have to start that job and on day one, it's, it's, a, it's a research process. It's really getting to know what that firm is doing, you know, how can you help collaborate with other people, and you can start to build your confidence in that space by getting to know folks, getting to know processes, how can you help improve them, um, what can you help and contribute to to give back and so I think my confidence came from knowing that I could help develop solutions or I could help be part of a solution and that that really buoyed me I, I would say thank you for listening to rising to the top lessons in leadership I'm Paul Maniacci from the career design lab and our editor is Peter Shea for more episodes subscribe on Spotify SoundCloud or Apple podcasts To get more information and tips on how you can advance your career, visit Columbia University's Career Design Lab at careerdesignlab.sps.columbia.edu.